Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is brought to you by The Word magazine, media partner of Latitude Festival 2010. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. It's a very special day. It's the 6th of July. Ringo Starr is 70 years old today. Bless him. So Ringo Starr, born not long after Dunkirk, you know, 70 years old today. And it's also, so we're going to be marking that later on in the podcast, but it's also, we're delighted to welcome, it's, it's between the first semi-final and the second semi-final of the World Cup, and we're delighted to welcome back our intrepid World Cup correspondent, <laughs> Jim White. Hello, no one's ever given me such a title before. I'm thrilled. <laughs> least we can I'm do, thrilled. Jim. Thank least you. we can do. Actually, you know, there's some footling title called the Daily Telegraph who actually, <laughs> who actually allegedly paid for Jim to go out there and, and, and watch the World Cup. But we like to feel he's also our World Cup correspondent. So, Jim... Let's go back first. How many of these big tournaments have you been to? Because Fraser and I, we sit there and watch them on the television. Yeah. And we're terribly envious of anybody who's actually terribly. But uh, how many of these have you been to? Uh, It sounds like that chant the England fans have, you know. Two World Wars and one (laughs) World Cup. Uh, Four World Cups and three European Championships. Oh, that's not bad, isn't it? And so how how does this one fit in alongside the others? Oh, it was great in every way apart from England. But that's always the way. I mean, it's interesting. England, you know, it, when I first went, I think I first went in 1990 uh, to a World Cup when England cast a pall over the world's party by having, you know, violent skirmishes with half the cops of Italy. Um, now they don't. The fans are wonderful and, and much, 
much uh, sought after. They they want the England fans there because they spend money on booze and and they're jolly and they have a great time. Is there, now it's to the inter- team. Is there, <laughs> I'm going to get to the team in a moment. So is this is this because South Africa was so far away and such an expensive place to go to? You know, it's not like hopping across the channel to Germany or whatever. Is this be- because? You know the violent part of the the, the 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 fan base was was priced out of the market. Yes, or, or have they changed anyway? It was economic social cleansing in a way. <laughs> but I met some remarkable England fans. I mean, just extraordinary. I met a guy, okay, who has been to every World Cup final since 1966. Wow, incredible! You know, his whole life is about going to watch England. He'd been to every England game you could imagine and when he goes to a world cup unlike me who you know the moment england went behind was sort of on the phone to the office to try and get a flight out of there he stays on and, and when you look at the semi-final tonight or the final even on sunday there'll be a cross there'll of be some George there there'll be a cross of George. and usually flagging up some less celebrated little corner of england absolutely you know, it's, it's, it's towns without premier league size it yeah. is isn't it dunstable yeah or whatever you know exactly there is some corner of a foreign field that is forever always and, and these Kettering. guys Kettering. <laughs> exactly <laughs> these guys were always there but they were sort of, you know, pushed into the background by the by by those who went there to fight. <laughs> right, and now right. I think they're in the majority, and and they're much uh, envied by every other country. I must get a ticket for a, uh, a, a South African friend of mine uh, at the uh, for the England Germany game, and uh, he couldn't believe how passionate the England fans were. He came out going. You know, you're 4-1 done. They're still shouting for the team. I said, you didn't... You know, your English ain't that great. You, know, you didn't really understand <laughs> what they were the shouting. Nuances. But never mind, you know. And, of course, they drink, they spend, and they go and travel in their thousands. So they're much wanted. And South Africa was very disappointed that England got knocked out because right. they were the fans boost. they wanted. Whereas... In 1990, even even as recently as 1998, the French couldn't wait for England to be knocked yeah. out. You know, it was a it was a pain in the neck that was. So we can be proud away. of that. You I know, think so. The we national can be very sport proud of is, them. is drinking and shouting at footballers. Very very proud of them, and not a single person uh, was arrested. Actually, the much vaunted uh, anticipated crime wave. There was nothing. The only people who appeared to be arrested were women wearing orange dresses. Yes, to which more in a moment. <laughs> and a bloke who got into the dressing room. They were about the only people. Yeah. And he was put up for it by, by a... By a <laughs> so, who are, the other, who are the other remarkable fans? I mean, the Dutch who are still in it, they're, they're usually much sorted. Yeah, I mean, well, one, of the, one of the things about, uh, you know, there's a big expat uh, yeah. element. So, uh, when we were at the England-America game, we were wanting to interview... Um, yeah, typical England fans afterwards, and there was a bunch of four guys dressed as Crusaders, and we assumed, oh, you know, they've got to be uh, uh, English to the heart. And we went up to talk to them, and they they all sounded as English as Kevin Peterson. You know, they'd come from down from Joburg and had these uh, very thick accents, presumably of English descent. And it, you know, there's a big Portuguese population there, and Dutch. We you know we don't want to get into the politics of South Africa too much, but the Dutch presumably they've been there before. They're anti. They were there first. Been there before. I think. I got the impression. I don't know if it's erroneous or not that a lot of people from the Southern Hemisphere, that kind of from South America and so forth. I don't know whether South Africa appears nearer. <laughs> if you're 
in Paraguay. I think you generally have to fly via Europe anyway. Oh, do you? Yes. So you can't nip directly across? It's pretty across. hard. No, right. you can't. And, and, and actually, just be aware of how illusory the uh, television is. You know, if there's a, a knot of about 50 Uruguayan fans, the TV cameras can pick those up and make them look as though they're filling the stadium. Whereas, in fact, you know, they're right over in the far distance in amongst a vast sea of... of Locals who are because that's the thing I couldn't get an idea of from watching the telly is who's in this stadium? You know, is it corporate? Is it local football fans? Is it travelling football fans? Is it people who don't quite know why they're there, like Paris Hilton and Mick Jagger? <laughs> well, Mick Jagger, to be fair, probably does know why he's there. Paris Hilton wouldn't. Um, you know, what was the kind of makeup of the people in the stadium at an average game? Uh, and it was harder to read South Africa than anywhere else. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want to get sound, you know, address the core readership of the Telegraph too much. But the Vuvuzela does completely smother everything so that you get no idea of the nuances of the, the, yeah. the way the, the, the ebb and flow of a game goes. Because it's just all the way through. Uh, it, 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 it's monotonous in the true sense of the word, so you don't mean, get any idea. Does that make your job harder if you're reporting on it? I, at the opening game, which was one of the most exciting, vibrant things, the noise was so much uh, that I had to wear earplugs, which fortunately local entrepreneurs were furnishing <laughs> at about, about a tenner a pair. I, I believe it's the same company that sells the Vuvuzelas. Probably is, yeah. yeah. In one hand, the Vuvuzela, in the other, the uh, thing. Um, but largely, it was an affluent crowd. Um, because you needed internet access, because you needed a credit card. So you couldn't buy tickets. the ticket anyway, even if you'd been able to afford it, yeah. if you didn't have yeah. internet yeah. access. And, uh, a, and, and a before the game, we had seen pictures of football in South Africa, and it was largely a black game. Uh, but I went to the first game, um, and I was told the best thing to do is park and ride. Uh, and I, I went to Vitz University, left the car there, got a bus from Vitz University into um, the Soccer City Stadium. And... Everyone was white around me. Everyone was white. So the, the, the kind of uh, people who we were told were completely obsessed with rugby, and indeed they are, it was event hunters. But right. I, think, I think you get that anyway. Because most, it's such a big deal, isn't yeah, it, having I the think, World Cup in you know, I think if, you, if, if it was in England, it would be in the hands of event hunters rather than yeah, core yeah. fans. Uh, the core fans tended to watch the big screens. Right, right. I note, uh, moving from the World Cup to the Olympics, that they've already announced that you can only buy Olympic tickets 2012 if you use certain credit cards. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. And this, this is st- standard procedure at major sporting events. Absolutely standard it? procedure. But, but, of course, that is now, did you know, you probably did, uh, all that uh, corporate business is now enshrined in British law. I mean, the fascinating thing about, uh, if you recall, the, 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 the models in the orange dresses. Uh, when yes, Holland, yes, just when give Holland us a bit of a background of it. Holland uh, played in a game and there were um, 30 or so uh, blonde women dressed in orange dresses and got lots of publicity. Miniskirts, so mini let's skirts. be fair. Yeah, let's be This is gorgeous, blonde. I think there were 50, actually. And, let's, and, uh, let's not undersell this. And, and every camera in there the stadium a, was trained on There was not a TV di- director born <laughs> no. who wouldn't exactly know where <laughs> the next shot was coming from. It's camera bait. It's camera bait. It was camera bait, and that was the point. It was a brilliant bit of guerrilla marketing by this beer called Bavaria, who none of us would have heard of had 
FIFA not reacted with its classic clod-hopping thing. And it wasn't and as if they were wearing wore. the Bavaria logo either. It was no, just enough weren't. to get them in the b- and have them thrown out. That's they were the wearing this orange dress that apparently is part of it's Bavaria's... It's isn't it? Yeah. It's part of Bavaria's advertising. I mean, yeah. it's a brilliant piece of guerrilla yeah, marketing. Uh, we now all know who Bavaria is because FIFA, with their clod-hopping manners, went in there... And got them kicked out. Now, they weren't just thrown out of the stadium. They were arrested <laughs> by state police and prosecuted by state prosecution and threatened with prison in state prisons because FIFA insisted that a bylaw was inserted into the South African Constitution which said it was an offence to wear um, uh, non-core sponsors' logos in a stadium. That statute is already on our books, ready for 2012. But to be fair, like the TV director cannot resist training the camera, there is no officer of the law who can resist either. <laughs> would you like to Would you like to get 50 gorgeous... <laughs> you know, you have to pat them down and give well, them due process of the law? I think it'd be quite, a, you know, quite an appealing little job, wouldn't it? Uh, 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 the 2006 uh, World Cup, um, Bavaria handed out... Lederhosen yes. in orange. Because you wrote about this in yeah, the word. To all, to all the camping Dutchmen. Um, but that did have a logo on. And when they arrived at the game, they had the uh, uh, Lederhosen taken off them and had to watch the game in their underpants. <laughs> now, that would have been a punishment yes. that no camera could have resisted. No, no I suppose not. But on this occasion, they, uh, they merely hustled them out of the stadium. So this is the shape of sporting events to come. Yep. I mean, they're, they're TV events, really. They're, they're Entirely. Entirely TV They're not events. for the people who are there. Not for the people who were there. Um, and indeed, you know, sometimes there weren't that many people there. I went to Portugal against North Korea. Um, and I'd say that two-thirds of the ground was full. And there were thousands of people who would have loved a ticket, but somewhere along the way, right. they're not considered important enough. Many North uh, Koreans there? Well, that's the interesting story, isn't it? There were about 20, but it, didn't it turn out that they weren't really North Koreans? <laughs> I don't know. I heard a story there are Chinese actors employed yeah. to... I spent, a, <laughs> I spent a day trying to track down the North Koreans. And we, we, we went early, early in the uh, competition, we went to... We found their hotel and then we tracked them down to training and we tried to get infiltrate the training and so on. It was great fun. They were the sort of, uh, they were the sort of comedy asides for everybody. So tell us about being with the press pack at a, at a kind of an event like this. What do you do? You all get up in the morning, meet down at breakfast and say, <laughs> today we're all going to rattle Wayne Rooney's cage. Well, or, fortunately, or whatever. fortunately, that wasn't my brief, David. I was on a, a roaming brief going all over the country and, and, and so on. The lads who were stuck in Sun City uh, were basically driven bonkers by it. As you say, it is precisely that. And there's a, there's a degree of collusion, a very interesting degree of collusion amongst the papers, particularly the tabloids, amongst the reporters, because they're all covering their back, and what they don't want is a, is a shout from their editor back home saying, how come you didn't get that story yes. that's in the other paper? So they all agree on what the story's going to be, and a similar version gets into every paper. Right. And that's why they're really beastly to the poor old agency guys, people from Reuters or PA. They don't want the guys from Reuters or PA getting an exclusive, which they then then turns up in the tabloid uh, uh, the next day, and the editors go, why am I sending you? I've got this story from PA. We sure. don't need you out there. Sure. So they're really beastly to them and don't allow them any access to the to uh, the players. And they, they keep this... So there's lots of little cabals and, See, I, 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 and elbowing is going we, on. Fraser and I have been watching it very closely from here, and, uh, you know, certain questions occur. I want to know, and you might be able to tell me, 
What's the story behind... How does John Terry organise a press conference well, in the midst of this? How does well, this happen? Well, th- that particular instance was, was intriguing because there's always someone who has to... Every day they put up a player... There's, there has to be somebody. There has to be somebody. And by coincidence, it was John Terry that day. Oh, so I that, see. That, that, so that he was didn't the reason. do it on his own. No, oh, he didn't right. actually, you know, call the I'm going to go out there. And then he said a couple of things that were kind of, you know, as is when you're stuck in Sun City and got nothing else to do but gamble, I assume, um, then, uh, <laughs> then, then, you know, you blow it out of all proportion, as the cliche goes. Right, right. So at what point in the press pack did they realise that the wheels, England's wheels, were coming off in, in pretty spectacular fashion? Well, I think that the nadir for England was the Algeria game, where they were just truly woeful. I mean, <laughs> really awful performance, um, where, you know, I, I, w- I was intrigued you know, to, to see how the world views our players because you're not in your home country but you're in an English language country so you can read the local press and so on and the local press have decided that the big figures of this World Cup uh, were going to be Ronaldo, Messi, Kaká, Torres and above all Rooney now of that five only one has got a chance of being the biggest figure in this World Cup and he is currently playing as if he's wearing lead boots yeah yeah who are the big stories? Uh, people, people, lots of people have never heard of. Diego Forlan, yeah. Luis Suarez, yeah, yeah. Ozil. Uh, premiership rejects an awful lot of them. I think yeah. quite a few premiership man- managers ought to be slightly embarrassed. Indeed. Now, of course, when you look at Diego Forlan or Dirk Kite, you wouldn't particularly want them on your magazine cover. But it's interesting that this has been a corrective of celebrity. In so, yeah, yeah, the star system's... Come apart. And England, of course, are the ultimate stars in that they're all paid Hollywood wages without necessarily having Hollywood status. And I think that is a very damaging thing to your self-esteem if you are assumed by your income to be better than you are. I think it's very damaging. And and, uh, England have long uh, laboured under this, you know. The assumption is that Frank Lampard is paid £150,000 a week, which is, what, £7 million a year... He must be a £7 million a year player. But actually, uh, Ozil or Forlan, who are paid nothing like that, have acquitted themselves much better. And I think that's a chastening thing for these guys. Yeah, yeah. Do you think this will change in any way the English game? No, it won't, because it's been, <laughs> it's been apparent for ever since the football boom took, took place that, that our players have a celebrity which isn't necessarily earned. Do you think it is widely realised, that? What, within the game? Well, uh, yes. But you see, the thing is that, that, that uh, the payment of players... I mean, Yaya Toure, he was OK, he's all right, he's, a, he's OK, he's not bad. You know, he's middle-of-the-road all-right player. He's going to be paid 55 million quid over four years by Man City now he's been signed. So there is no suggestion that this World Cup has made a corrective to... Do we know what he was earning at Barcelona? Well, it wouldn't have been anything near that. I mean, for a start, you know, he's had to go to a place where then there's not going to be the football at the very top level, so there's got to be some sort of compensatory pay. But it suggests that payment is nothing to do with results. So they're still chucking money after mediocre players 
And it can't it, be based it, on it, commercial it worth either because it's it not like they're going to sell that many T-shirts. It can't be. It's based on the fact there's a, there's a surfeit of cash around the game. And, and actually, those correctives... You see, Germany... A very interesting thing about Germany is they've got a, a lot of very good young players. And Germany had a corrective about six or seven years ago when the major financer of German TV... Uh, sorry, of, uh, of German football, which was one of the satellite TV companies, pulled out. And so suddenly all the big celebrity players from overseas left. The, the clubs had to get in, do something, so promoted young German players from within. Or some of them are German, some of them are Polish, yeah. whatever. But at least it's nice that the, the team reflects the cultural makeup of the country, which exactly. you don't see in other places. Exactly. But, but, so that corrective happened to Germany, and, 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 and look at how they flourished. In England it's still so the, best the celebrity, the- and, and it's, it doesn't really matter... I mean, that's the sadness. It doesn't really matter what the England team do. It's not going to have much effect on, on that. What would have an effect on that is if Sky TV pulled out. And then suddenly, blimey, all these guys would be... The money would be plunged down. All these guys would leave. We have... Thir- uh, uh, Fabio Capello basically has 50 players to pick from, really. Only 30% of the, uh, of the Premier League is eligible to play for England, whereas over 70% of La Liga and over 70% of the Bundesliga are able to play for Spain and Germany. Right. Mm. So I think that's the only way it's going to change. It's not going to change because the FA wanted it. It's not going to change because of Trevor Brooking. It's certainly not going to change because people like me are writing about unless we promote youth <laughs> from within and properly educate them, they're going to do it. It'll only change if there's a commercial force to change it. So what about my, my theory about the England team? I test this on you, Jim. Yeah. Uh, bore everybody in the office with this, and it's been the case for over ten years. They're thick. I don't mean that they can't summarise Proust. I mean that they can't change their mind. That you can see when things go wrong, you yeah. can see a look of blind panic in their eyes. I think Stephen Gerrard's a very interesting uh, case in point in this. I think Stephen Gerrard's a, a, a big-hearted guy who, who goes out there wanting to do his best and he always fails to do as instructed he never sticks to his position perhaps it's not the best position for him but he never is there in the right place he's forever trying what uh, Big Ron used to call the Hollywood pass instead of a nice little ten yard pass he's always going for the glory of, of, of the screaming equaliser that he got in the FA Cup final in the last minute and, you know, wonderful goal he scored in, 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 in the Champions League once. He's forever trying to replicate those moments and he just doesn't stick to a bloody game plan. And I think, you know, there was a, there was a moment where I went to the press conference after the Germany game where Fabio Capello, who's a man I hugely admire, just looked baffled. <laughs> seriously baffled he could not understand why there was such a gap between basically he couldn't understand why they bloody well didn't do what they were told right and they didn't yeah yeah whereas i would imagine you know i mean very very interesting did you read that piece a fantastic piece by uh, my colleague henry winter about how two phd students from the university of cologne had tracked every game that all the England players had played, and condensed it into a 15-minute DVD, which they had sent to Joachim Love. And he had looked at it and realised, blimey! And it was the manner in which John Terry can be pulled out of position. It's the manner in which 
Gareth Barry doesn't hold his discipline. It's the manner in which Stephen Gerrard's never in the place that he should be. And literally, Love said, right, we're going to go there. You there, you there, into that gap, you will run. And they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you seem to be saying that the, the best thing that could be happened to English football is if all the money suddenly disappeared out of it. I think that would make a huge difference. Right. I, mean, I think that then you would have to go back to basics in a way. Because at the moment, the, the, the gap between the clubs and the country is so wide that it really doesn't matter. I mean, look, let's be honest. There were four players playing uh, for England from Chelsea. It's not in Chelsea's interest that they were there. Chelsea don't want them there. It'd be much better if Lampard and Terry hadn't gone and they could have rested up fresh for Chelsea's needs uh, in, yeah. in the new season, in the Champions League. And so Chelsea is owned by a foreigner. He's got no um, emotional attachment to England. They're coached by a foreigner. He's got no emotional attachment to England. So there's absolutely no reason why they should do anything that's but, going to benefit But don't they like having these high-profile players who are English? Doesn't it help them sell season tickets and help the image of the club? I, I, I expect they sell more season tickets on the, on the promise that they're going to sign Fernando Torres, I would have thought. It, it's about getting as many superstars in. And if a couple of those superstars you get happen to be English... Fair enough, but you're not going to do anything. Listen, I'm, I, I've said Chelsea because they supplied more than Arsenal, who don't even have any English players in the in the squad. Um, so you know, there is no reason for that. They, they, they have they have no commercial benefit from England doing well at all. Yeah, there's a sort of Good well, it'd be nice. Yes, it would be nice, but they don't really care. Right, and I mean that's the major problem with English football. The gap between the clubs at the top and the, and the because you know for instance the grooming of young players coming through you know that th- there's been a law change whereby you don't actually have to have local youngsters after 16 you can get them in from all over the EU so if you look at the Chelsea young Chelsea team that 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 uh, competed in the uh, FA Youth Final uh, for the last couple of years. 75% of them weren't English. So not even their youth team is English. Yeah, there's yeah. absolutely... There's no reason for them to develop young talent. If oh, they well, are developing young talent, it doesn't, there's no reason why it should be English. Well, that's all very depressing. Sorry about that. No, no, fair <laughs> enough. So we're not going to win anything. Okay, we're not going to win anything official. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. But I'd like to see them compete occasionally. You know. So, uh, leaving that aside, what's your favourite non-football story to emerge from this World Cup? There must have been some. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 as I said, I thought the, the whole kind of atmosphere of the, uh, of, of the place was... There was a real lift. There, it was. It was magnificent. The, the real shame, and I think it's a real shame for South Africa, was that Mandela wasn't able to go. I think that would have been that would have been a wonderful image, wouldn't it, of him opening the tournament? I mean, there's there's talk of him maybe getting to the closing game, but that wouldn't have been quite the same. That would have been the memory mm-hmm. for yeah. everybody. Yeah. My personal highlight was I went diving with great white sharks in oh, uh, off Cape good. Town. Uh, which was uh, which was absolutely magnificent. But I think the the thing that made me laugh the most was I'm sure you saw it was the YouTube uh, clip of Angela Merkel 
and David Cameron watching the England-Germany game at the G20 Summit. <laughs> Clearly, neither of them really having a clue what was going on, <laughs> neither of them having the remotest interest in football, but knowing that they had to make some sort of effort. Because you've got to do that nowadays. You've no, got to do that. If you go back and look at the 1966 World Cup final, I don't think you see Harold Wilson there. No. Yeah. no. S- oh, well. So, um, who's the strangest... Who was the person you saw there that you thought, what are you doing here? <laughs> there must have been somebody. Bill Clinton at the, uh, Clinton, at the uh, yeah. US-England game. Hobnobbing, indeed, with Mick. Oh, Simic. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause he, Mick's a kind of serial event hunter, though. I mean, you see him at Lords quite often as well, don't you? You've seen him at, I've seen him at Wimbledon finals as well. I he once, likes a big event. I'm going to drop a name now. I, I was once went to a Barbados test match. With Mick Jagger. Uh, England, the West Indies, England got dropping. You know, this is mid-80s, whatever. And this was the series where Gatting had got very badly roughed up, uh, broken nose and so forth, and had to come home and so forth. Then he'd gone back out there. And <laughs> this gave you an idea of the relative pecking order of rock and roll and sport in those days. Because I was sitting there with Mick Jagger and Gatting came out at lunchtime and said to Mick... Would you like to come and have lunch with 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 the boys? And Mick went, "No, I got my sandwiches." <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't happen anymore, would it? No, it he'd be straight. He'd be in straight there. in there straight in absolutely there. any sporting, you know. But 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 the, there was a wonderful collision between celebrity and and sport with David Beckham. What was he doing there? I mean, you ask what who was there? What was David Beckham doing there? As kind of well unofficial cheerleader, really. In his, well, in I his suppose it's to make it into a huge entertainment event, isn't it? Yeah. You need those in his waistcoat. And, you know, um, making sure... I mean, he has got a genius for get, getting attention. I mean, a real innate genius. Oh, he has. But that moment where he kind of accosted the ref coming off and, and you know, looked like a kind of disappointed fisherman with his arms apart to indicate how far Lampard's goal was over the line. Yeah. And, you know, those pictures went over. And the ref, the look on the ref's face is... What's he got to do with you? Well, you know? to which Beckham, you know, would would answer, but he wouldn't say this aloud. I'm David Beckham. Yeah, you know, I can do what I like. But he That's was saying what he likes. Okay. I mean, that was better. I mean, you know, Mick Jagger was up in a box somewhere. Bill Clinton was up in a box somewhere. David Beckham was on the bench. And if any That's other real celebrity, if yeah. any other player gets injured, they're nowhere near the squad. Mm. It's yeah. only Beckham. Well, Bex, he's the ex- exception to all rules. Well, Jim, thanks very much for, for giving us your, your particular insight into, into the World Cup. I'm not sure how insightful it was, but... No, no, David. very, very, very... Uh, and as I said earlier, uh, Ringo Starr's 70th birthday. Are you a fan? Of Ringo? Yeah. Well, he wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles, was no, he? No, is that too cruel? <laughs> is that too cruel? Oh, canard. <laughs> this, you know, being uh, you know, rattled out in newsrooms all over the country mm. today. You know. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. But uh, to, get, to get a drummer's view on, on the value of Ringo in the Beatles, I, I spoke earlier today to uh, Matt Priest, formerly of Dodgy, and I asked him, first of all... How important was he to them as a musical addition? Uh, vital, vitally important. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's a cliche to say it, really, and I, and I hate to, to, to remind people of that quote of John Lennon's, which is that he wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles, um, because people who don't really know about music, you, you know, they'll say, oh, what do you do? I say, oh... Oh, you know, I'll play the drums. Oh, uh, do you like Ringo? He wasn't even... And I, I have to punch them before they get to the end of the uh, of the sentence because John was obviously joking. 
Um, his uh, Ringo's uh, Ringo's ability is just you know it's perfect for the Beatles. It was uh, it, it, if you look at the golden period between sixty five and sixty seven when you know it's they're arguably at their best. Uh, Ringo was up there with them. You know Ringo was doing his best stuff. Um, you know, when John and Paul and George were really pushing it, and, well, and George Martin were really pushing the sound and trying to explore where they could go, Ringo was right there with them, you know. And, uh, uh, I mean, specifically, if you, if you listen to Strawberry Fields Forever, A Day in the Life, Rain, She Said, She Said from around that period, uh, I mean, you know, they're all recorded in a space of months from each other, you know. Uh, it's phenomenal. I mean, um you, you know the, the 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 sound in the studio that, that that Jeff Emmerich and George Martin were coming up with with the with the um, sound of the, the 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 dampening on the drums and also close miking the drums. You know it was absolutely perfect for Ringo for Ringo's sound. And uh, you know I defy anyone to try to play like Ringo, especially in that golden period. It was just phenomenal. He he matched them. You know he he's the archetypal drummer of someone who played the song. You know, uh, John Bonham was was a complete force of nature, uh, and he was a you know essential for Led Zeppelin. You know, some would say the most important part of Led Zeppelin. But Ringo Starr um, supported the Beatles in the sense he played the song. He didn't play too much. You know, he he wasn't he wasn't an ego driven drummer. He was someone that was just very delicate at the right times, but also very rocky at other times as well. He, there could have been no other drummer for the Beatles. And, and if it wasn't for Ringo, the Beatles wouldn't be the way that they are now. Now, you've had some experience uh, trying to play like him, haven't you, in, in a Beatles tribute group. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, um, I'm actually doing a uh, a radio documentary um, about tribute bands at the moment. And I'm going to be um, interviewing the bootleg Beatles as well as... Uh, joining a, a Beatles tribute band called Sergeant Pepper's Only Dartboard Band. Uh, I'll be joining them for one gig, but I played with them last year. Um, the Dodgy were, were doing a gig with them, and they came up and they looked a bit sheepish, saying, "Could you could you fill in for Ringo because he's going to a wedding?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, God, I'd love to. And so, you know, I quite arrogantly thought I'd be able to do it quite easily. You know, I looked at the set list and boy, was I wrong. It's uh, it's some of it. Yeah, fair enough. I want to hold your hand. It's help and hard day's night. Bang. It's, you know, one, two, three, four. See you at the end. Um, but still, he plays very, very quickly. And some of the fills that he does, even you'd never think when you listen to Ticket to Ride or I Feel Fine. It's so intricate, some of the stuff that he does. And yet, on the other hand, um, you know, I've never played a song with such majesty of when I actually did something, the cover version of something with this Beatles band. It has got so much majesty and grace. And what Ringo plays is is actually perfect. You couldn't play. And I, I defy any other drummer. I mean, you put, you put John Bonham on something by the Beatles, it would have sounded awful. You, you, you put Mitch Mitchell or Ginger Baker or any other drummer of that period um, on the diverse songs that the Beatles did from... Ticket to Ride and Help through to something, and they wouldn't have been able to cope. They had a style and they stuck to it. But Ringo was prepared to explore and experiment with his sound, just like the other three in the Beatles were as well. And and it's absolutely essential. He was essential to the Beatles. 
He's, he's a left-hander who was trained to play right-handed, which I understand means he plays in odd ways. How does that work? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I mean, when you go abroad and you, and you hire a car in France and you, and, you, and you drive on the other side, it's very strange. It's very different. You know, your mind works in different ways, and and especially with drums, it's uh, it's you you attack, especially the drum fills, you attack differently. Where um, a right-handed drummer would automatically go for the snare drum to start a drum fill, Ringo would go for a floor tom and, and a tom tom and then a snare. And you can hear that specifically on some of the drum fills on, on Strawberry Fields Forever and Day in the Life, where it's... And it's got that real swing to it, but also an unconventional way that it goes for those, for those toms. So that helped as well. I mean, I believe the start of that was because um, back in the late 50s when you had, you know, 20 bands on a bill... They didn't have time to swap a, a drum kit round for a, for a kage-handed drummer, so he had to learn very quickly to play right-handed. I understand also he's one of the first drummers to, to not hold his left stick like a chopstick. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's called the traditional grip, David. Um, <laughs> and that's, the, uh, that's how jazz drummers uh, would, uh, would hold it. And, uh, and yes, and I think it was because he got more power. He sat very, very high on his kit. Um, you know, you look at those early, um, early Ed Sullivan shows. He's very, very high, and, and gave him a lot of power with that hand as well. But no, but I, th- I mean, there were people who played. Um, I believe Gene Krupa um, and, and a few others uh, around that sort of uh, late fifties jazz time um, used to swap that left hand, and that, that when they swapped it, it became a, a, um, a match grip instead of a traditional grip. Sound like a real uh, train spotter here, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about how important he was to to their sound. How important was he to their them as a group, their chemistry as a group? Um, well, you know, the, the, the you know magazines have uh, have poured over the Beatles, and and you know, and quite rightly because because they were so important, and 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 they were a group, and that's what's so important. It's it's the. Um, uh, it, it's the fact that, that that John and Paul and and George Martin, you know, they were really pushing it uh, around that golden period, '66, um, pushing it experimentally, and and certainly John and Paul were uh, and George were were taking lots of psychedelics as well. And you know, Ringo, by his own admission, only took it a couple of times, and you know, it didn't really do much for him. So uh, he had to be able to keep up with the rest of them. Uh, and he did because he he was the he was the eldest. Um, you know, he certainly come came from a totally totally poverty stricken background, uh, and he's, I think he was grounded a lot more grounded. Uh, and I think you know when it was all going a bit crazy for him, they could always turn around and and Ringo would be there with a with a comment or you know or or, or keeping him firmly down. I mean, a lot of the great titles that John came out with, a lot of the the humour you know, uh, came from Ringo as well. Tomorrow Never Knows, you know, that was a Ringoism. Hard Day's Night was a Ringoism. Um, You know, but of course, I mean, purely financially or or, or purely profile-wise, in America, it was Ringo was the main one. Ringo, Paul, John, George. It was was Ringo was the one. And to this day, whenever I go to America, um, you know, Ringo is the main Beatle. You know, they loved him. Now, you know, and it's you were mentioning that there's a Japanese drummer who who demonstrates Ringo's prowess on on the internet. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Because I was um, 
I'm I'm doing this 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 gig in a couple of weeks for this uh, Beatles tribute band, and um, you know I thought I'd try and uh, uh, you know do a bit of homework apart from because the, the problem is as well with listening to those old Beatles records is you can't quite work out what he's doing. Uh, but but there's a chap online, of course there is. There's, of course there's a chap on YouTube, and it's a Japanese chap, and it goes by the name of Batman, Batman Cozy, um, and with with a, with an extra Y and a K for Cozy, as in Cozy Power. So Batman Cozy, uh, or you just look search for Beatles drums covers, and he does Rain, he does Strawberry Fields Forever, he does Hello Goodbye. And it's phenomenal just to watch what he plays. And you think, I never knew he did that. I never knew. But but again, Ringo, you know, your appreciation for Ringo just shoots up even more because this guy has obviously completely studied Ringo and what he does. And it's amazing. Nobody plays like Ringo. Nobody really since has played like Ringo. And nobody at the time played like Ringo. You know, it's uh, a happy birthday, Ringo, you know. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. This podcast is brought to you by The Word magazine, media partner of Latitude Festival 2010. For more details, go to www.latitudefestival.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>